that better? Okay. I hate to break in. That's still a little loud. Hate to break in, but uh, we're going to kind of get started. If you have kids that you want to put into child care, now would be the time to do that. Also, um, wow, it's really coming down. Kind of. I'm glad we have Noah's Ark here. We'll just flip this baby over and we're ready to go. So, um, Stephanie is, a, is about to um, lock the doors and nobody will be allowed to leave until all the food is gone. So it's kind of our Hotel California thing. You can check in, but you can't check out. So, <laughs> Oh, boy. Do you guys want to be in Hotel California or the Roach Motel? Which one do you want? Because those are bad choices. Bad, bad choices. So what is Theology Thursday? Theology Thursday is uh, occasionally we'll take one topic and um, we'll just try to go deep on it one night, uh, 75 minutes, maybe 60 if somebody else is talking. But um, And, and we, we often do things that are... Uh, huge issues in the culture and what, how does the gospel apply to that. But sometimes we do something like tonight where we're just going to take one verse and, and go deep on what we, what we might think it means. And it's something I've been looking at and reading about and studying uh, since October of last year, which doesn't mean I'm right. It just means I've put a lot of time into this. And I feel a little self-indulgent because this is really my baby. But at any rate, uh, that's what we're doing here tonight. A uh, couple more that we have, we haven't set times, we haven't even fully planned it out, but uh, Cody and I, about a little over a year ago I did a thing on social media. Uh, Cody and I want to do, and this is driven by Cody primarily, we want to do a follow-up to that that's uh, more focused on how to be gospel-centered on social media. How can we be a voice of, of reason and faith in the midst of whatever it is that you want to call it that's going on in social media, which only gets worse by the day. Um, we were looking at that, and then we have a couple of um, physicians, doctors that attend here, and there's one in particular that I've started having some conversations with that, um, again, he's not driving them, I'm driving them, but I'm fascinated with his understanding of how his view of our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit drive his practice. Uh, so there's a tremendous uh, uh, gospel depth to what he does. And, and the more I talk to him, the more I just think it would be interesting to bring him in and maybe one night just kind of have a conversation with him. Um, kind of unscripted, but, uh, and just, uh, ha you know, let him ramble and stuff. Because I like it when he rambles. He's really interesting. So uh, anyway, um, so like I said, uh, I was a little nervous about, um, because... This is a self-indulgent topic of mine. I was nervous that people would be able to uh, walk away from tonight thinking that was worth coming. So this is why we reinstituted food, number one, so at least you got to eat. And number two, we want to show you a very important video that, that has to do with our culture today uh, that I think might actually be better than anything we talk about tonight. You, you'll, you'll really learn something from this short little two-minute few-second video, so watch the uh, video. Have you ever been told by a Christian friend that they wanted to love on you and it made you feel uncomfortable? Has a believer ever asked you who you are doing life with and you didn't know what to say? Has someone ever invited you to a fellowship but you didn't go because you don't even know what that is? Hi. I'm regionally semi-successful Christian music recording artist Micah Tyler, and I'm here to help solve a problem that so many in our world face today by offering to you a new program, Rosetta Stone, Christianese. <laughs> Unlike Hebrew and Greek, which are only learned by your pastor so they can impress you with one line each Sunday morning, Rosetta Stone Christianese will teach you to communicate the Lord's true language for the church today. With Rosetta Stone Christianese, you'll learn words and phrases like, being relevant, unspoken prayer requests, quiet time, and I see that hand. You'll also learn measurements like tenfold, one hundredfold, a season, and much, much more. As you mature in your relationship with Christ and His bride, we also offer advanced courses in Southern Draw, West Coast Slang, 
in King James Version. So whether you're on your computer, riding in your car to a Bible study, or even in your prayer closet, <laughs> Rosetta Stone Christianese will give you the tools that you need to grow and bear fruit in your Christian walk and your Christian talk. And that's not all. With your order today, you will also receive a free church sign pocket decoder that will help you dig into the theological depths of every roadside treasure. Signs like sunscreen prevents sunburn, God answers an email, and ch, -ch what's missing? Car. So log on to our website, sign up today, and begin the journey of a lifetime by conforming to the ways of these words. And if you are not fully satisfied within the first 40 days and 40 nights of purchasing <laughs> this program, well, bless your heart. There are no refunds. May the Lord give you a hedge of protection and traveling mercies wherever your feet may carry you. I'm Micah Tyler. Peace be with you. <laughs> So uh, um, after the study tonight, Micah will be in the back with a table, and you can buy Rosetta Stone Christianese if you want. All right. Let's define freedom. What does it mean to be free? Anybody want to offer something up, please? <laughs> oh, okay, here you go. Let me ask it a little bit different. Not what does it mean to be free, and then you're worried that that's the wrong definition. What do you think other people think it means to have freedom. Now you can talk about other people. I can do whatever I want. What else? Sorry? N not be restricted in any way, is that what you said? Okay, yep. Not be restricted in any way, not have any restrictions put on you. Okay. I can choose my own destiny. How about I can make my own destinies? Unencumbered. So unrestricted, whatever I want, unencumbered. Okay, so. And in addition, you have control over everything else. Because if somebody else's freedom messes with your freedom, that's a problem, right? So there has to be a, an element of control. Pretty good, right? Just, just right there, that 45 seconds, can, can you just logically start to anticipate there might be some trouble? Okay, here's how uh, Webster or Hyper Dictionary or whatever it is that I looked online defines it. It's the power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. Now, let me ask this question. Leave that definition up. Given that definition, isn't that just a tad fanciful and ideological in practice? Think about the consequences down the road. If everybody has this ability, what's going to happen? Sooner or later, that power or right to do whatever you want will come up against what? Someone else's power or right to do whatever they want. So what do you do then? Just hang on to that. Here's another definition. This was the second definition. The state of not being imprisoned or enslaved. Isn't that interesting? The state of not being imprisoned or enslaved. This gets really interesting to me because if you think about Paul's writings in the New Testament, half of the time uh, that he identifies himself, he identifies himself as what? A bondservant or a slave, and what else? A prisoner. A prisoner. Um, Paul is also the one who wrote, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, yet he self-identifies as a, as a bondservant and as a prisoner. And that's literally and metaphorically, both. So again, what do you do with that? So here's just a little preview. Uh, the world believes that freedom means being able to do whatever you want with no consequences and no hindrances. But we cannot do anything we want to. Think about this for a variety of reasons. We don't have enough time, 
right? How many of you feel time-starved as it is? Doesn't that encroach on your, quote, freedom? Uh, how many of you have the money to do anything that you want? And, well, well, this is Arcadia. But nevertheless, how many of you have the money to do whatever you want? How many of you have the physical capacity to do whatever you want? Sorry, I don't mean to be depressing at this point, but I mean, think about those things. So really, already there are some natural restraints and hindrances and boundaries and problems to all of this. This idea that, you know, you can create your own destiny. You, you, you can follow your own destiny. You can be whatever you want to be. That's another way of saying it, maybe, okay? Oh. Could I be whatever I want to be? Could I? If I had started early enough in life, could I have been whatever I wanted to be? Could I? Here you go. Could I have been a power forward in the NBA? Okay, I'm, I'm a little shocked that only one person was ready that quick, and that was not planned at all, okay? Okay, but no, absolutely not. I could have practiced my heart out, given my whole life to it. I'm not going to be a power forward in the NBA. And I know, well, that's easy to do. Okay, here you go. Something a little bit more possible. Could I have been uh, one of the world's great concert pianists? Okay, if you believe that it only takes practice to be able to do something like that, perhaps. But you understand that there's a certain gifting or wiredness that people who are that great at something have in addition to all the work that they do. Okay, right? People say that Michael Jordan is a great natural athlete, and that's why he was a great basketball player. He was, he, he was, that's true, he was. He was a great natural athlete. But he was also great because he practiced really hard and disciplined himself so that he had the freedom to be great. Think about that. And then... The whole consequence thing. Is it possible to do whatever you want without any consequences? Negative consequences. Is that even possible? Some of you look stunned that I even asked that, like you're really trying to figure it out. No, th there are going to be consequences. Okay? And sooner, sooner or later, we will certainly run into someone whose freedom is infringing on our freedom or vice versa, and that's a problem. So true freedom... A little preview still. True freedom is actually the ability to say no to some things, which then allows you to say yes to others. And often that means saying no to some very, very good things so that you can say yes to other things that are even better or more valuable to you. Tim Keller, some of you maybe have heard of him, he calls this negative freedom. Now, right out of the gate, people, negative ne negative's not good. That's not good, Okay. Well, there are two uh, contexts in which negative is good. When you get test results, negative is good. Michael Scott didn't know that on The Office when Kevin, they thought Kevin had cancer, if you remember that episode. But negative is good, and here negative is also good. Now, this is not the only verse or passage or text to look at, but I found it's one of the more perplexing ones. If you were here Sunday, you heard me talk about it. It's uh, Galatians 5.1, where Paul writes... For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. As I mentioned, that first half of that verse is the one that very often gets quoted, gets thrown into a, into a conversation. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And what prompted me to start looking into this was in October, I threw that into a conversation, like so many Christian people do, Almost like a mic drop. Well, it's for freedom that Christ. Boom, that settles everything. And I, and I literally walked away and started thinking, do I even know what that verse means? And yet I just threw it out there. And I wonder if anybody else really knows. Um, and I started thinking about it, and I thought, you know, if you were to take a philosophy class and bring up that first part of the verse, wouldn't you be in a little bit of trouble? Circular argument, you know, that's a problem. Okay, there has to be some context around this, and literally for a while I thought maybe Paul was channeling his Dr. Seuss, 
meant, you know, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free, and I'm surprised the next part of the verse didn't rhyme with free, okay, but it was written in Greek, so it doesn't matter. So it almost doesn't mean anything, but in context it does. And then the second half of that verse, okay, do not submit yourself again to a yoke of slavery. Uh, submitting yourself to Jesus, in other words, becoming, the Greek word is doulos, it means bondservant or slave. Submitting yourself to Jesus, becoming a bondservant of Jesus, actually frees us from slavery. The entire New Testament teaches that. Real freedom is in Jesus, all else is in bondage. It's counterintuitive, it's almost irrational. That Christianese video that we just watched, if you just start talking to somebody who's never been around church, really never been around the Bible, you start to tell them that, that this is where real freedom is, is you have to give up everything and submit to Christ. They, literally, without the Holy Spirit illuminating that for them, they, they, they'll pretty much say, okay, I, I, I have a dental appointment, I got to get out of here. It's, it's irrational in some respects, but it is true. One of the things we need to remember, which is so hard sometimes, um, is that when the Bible was written, there were no chapter or verse breaks, and there were no trans uh, translator's headings, okay? So my Bible has a verse break before 5.1, a chapter break before 5.1, and the ESV translators have inserted a heading that's not in the original Greek text of the letter, Christ has set us free. In our minds, what does that do when you come to the end of a verse, the end of a chapter, and there's a, a, a translator's inserted heading that wasn't in the original text? What does that do in your mind? I'm done with that, and now we're moving forward with something. But chapter 5, verse 1, is merely a continuation of the thought from the end of chapter 4, which ends at verse 31. You can't separate 5-1 from the end of chapter 4. Can't be done. Now, we often do it, especially when we're preaching through a book. When I first came to Redemption nearly seven years ago, we were in the process of preaching through Galatians, and that's exactly, we broke at 431 and then picked it up at 5-1, further reinforcing this break, this uh, uh, unnatural break, okay? And we have to do that when we're preaching through books, I understand that, but but we do it all the time. But in context, in chapter 4, Paul is expressing a grave concern that he expresses in several of his other letters, including Ephesians, which we're going through right now. It's, it's the concern that his friends in Galatia have have started to drift back away from the gospel after hearing the gospel and accepting Jesus. They are now drifting back away, and they are willingly drifting back to both cultural and legal enslavement. The two kinds of uh, slavery that the New Testament is most concerned with. And, and again, it's not that culture is necessarily bad. It's not that the law is necessarily bad. That's not what we're saying. But when we elevate it over the gospel or make it a part of the gospel, that becomes a real problem. God bless you. Speaking of God. So two things. Number one, primarily, Paul talks about their willingness to submit themselves to the wisdom of the culture. You know, the wisdom of the world, the current cultural mores that all enlightened people live by and encourage or even bully others to live by. All of us have experienced this in many shapes and forms. By the way, if you think that our, our current culture of philosophical, political, and progressive, and conservative bullying is something new, um, you might be interested to know that in the 18th century, political opponents in the United States talked openly about wanting their opponents to die. They spoke openly about it. This is an observation. It is not a political statement, so please email Cody, all right? But when th there was a senator recently, just a few days ago, that made a joke about President Trump drowning, and, and everybody thinks this is a new 
low for our dialogue in the United States. That, this was a normal thing. We just didn't have social media in the 18th century. It was no normal thing. Normal thing. I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying, you know, come on. Human beings have always been problematic, or another word would be depraved. Okay? Anyway, Paul reminds us in chapter 4 that you and I, by nature and necessity, will serve something. We will worship something. We will be slave to, slaves to something we cannot escape. To quote, again, the passage that we went through earlier this summer in Ephesians 4, Paul writes, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves of current cultural dogma and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So there's your Ephesians reference to the same thing that he's dealing with. We're, we're, we're all prone to this. All of us are. And, and it's a form of slavery. And it restricts our freedom. We think that by doing it, we're achieving or pursuing freedom, but it actually restricts our freedom. So here's some ideas. So um, being tossed to and fro by the waves of current cultural dogma and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes, such as let's ignore biology, physiology, neurology, and neurology, and let's proclaim that there are absolutely no differences between men and women and you can be whatever you want. That's one of them. Which, by the way, a postmodern philosopher in the 90s prophetically wrote a book about how this is where we're headed. And in just a few decades, we will ignore biology, neurology, and physiology when it comes to gender. Like, let's take that verse that says God is love and let's, let's just switch it around a little bit and make it love is God because then we can do whatever we want in the name of love. It's popular cultural dogma. It's not what the verse says. Like, let's ignore math because math is restrictive and mean and oppressive. And let's just keep spending, spending money that we don't have on things that we don't need. And don't worry, things will eventually work out. Can anybody say 20 trillion deficit? Here's another one. Let me signal my virtue by posting on all of my social media platforms my robust agreement with all the latest untested but popular cultural dogmas. Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes this, See to it that no one takes you captive. He uses language of slavery, the opposite of freedom. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. See, we think as human beings we're enlightened when we accept without thought, without discernment, or without testing. What does John say in 1 John? Because you need to test the spirits. That includes in church, by the way. But not only test the spirits in church, but test the spirits in culture, in the world. But we're so willing to accept this without thought, discernment, or testing, um, the will of the various elusive, multifaceted cultural winds. But in reality, we're just slaves to that. Here's why. We are slaves to affirmation. Tom Parker says we're affirmation addicts, all of us. We're slaves to comfort. I readily admit that one of the most problematic false gods in my own life is comfort. Uh, we're slaves to cool. We, 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 just, we, we, we can't stand the fact that somebody might not think we're cool. We're slaves to the pride of life, as John calls it. Uh, Josh Butler, in his, I will continue to say this, excellent book, the skeletons in God's closet, he writes this, we are slaves to the cultural standards of moral applause, self-justification, and social acceptance for our very existence. But there's a second slavery that Paul talks about and expounds on more after verse 1 of chapter 5. So the context is not only uh, previous to this verse, but it's also what follows. And this is the idea that religious practices in the law will save or redeem you or give you 
fulfillment in life, give you purpose. That's a form of bondage as well. Submitting to your own ability to be moral or to follow a code. I know many of you won't get this, but those of you that will, you'll understand what I mean. Even Dexter couldn't do that. You can read the books. You don't need to watch the show. Paul says, if you find yourself thinking that you can be saved by following the law, you are submitting yourself to a different kind of slavery yoke. That's also slavery. It's not that the law is bad. God gave the law. The law is good. It's his. But the law was never intended to save us. It was intended to point people to God, the one who does save, because nobody can keep the law. The idea is that you look at the law, it's a, it acts as a mirror. You see that you're falling short, and there's no way you can keep it. You need a supernatural intervention in your life to be redeemed. And that's Jesus. And in the Old Testament, it was God's grace and power. We, we become enslaved by the yoke of religion. This is the very context in which Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 18. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. A lot of people read this verse and think when they hear, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, it's all of us who are working more than 50 hours a week. If we just come to Jesus, we're going to find rest. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about a yoke which is important language to understand in his context. Every rabbi in the first century, once they became a rabbi, and you had to go through years of training starting when you were a male, starting before you were six years old, you would go through years of training, and every couple of years there'd be a cut. And if you didn't make it, you'd go off and you'd go into your father's business and do whatever your father did. If your father was a carpenter, you became a carpenter. You stopped with the religious school. But if you made it all the way through, uh, eventually you could go to somebody like Gamaliel, who was the greatest Pharisee who ever lived. He was Paul's teacher, the Apostle Paul. He was his teacher. Paul is his most famous disciple. But you would eventually, once you completed, you made it through the school, you made it through graduate school, you made it through all of that, you would go and like interview with all of these rabbis. And, and they would see if they wanted you in their little sheepfold, and, they, and you needed to discern if you wanted to be a part of that rabbi's yoke. And the yoke of a rabbi is a reference to how he teaches, interprets, and explains the Torah, the five books of Moses. And every rabbi had a little different nuance or explanation for the Torah, the five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Seborrhea, and Psoriasis, I think they are. Oh, Numbers and, and Deuteronomy, okay? Well, there are skin diseases in the Old Testament, so anyway. So that would be their yoke. And the rabbis would teach that you have to be able to keep this yoke in order to be saved, in order to be um, righteous in the sight of Yahweh, Okay? And they would just pound away. Are you keeping the law? Are you keeping the yoke? You're not measuring up. We need more sacrifices. Nobody could ever measure up. Jesus comes along and he says, take my yoke of what? Not law, but what? Grace. Take my yoke of grace upon you. And you will find rest. It's not that you don't have to do anything. It's that now there is an aspect of all this work, all this law-keeping has already been done by Jesus, and we just get to live into that. And guess what? There's freedom in that. There's freedom in the fact that when we don't live up to it, we're forgiven. And by the way, I know this is hard sometimes for people to hear, but the sins you have yet to commit, you're already forgiven. God stands outside of time. He already knows what you're going to do. He's already forgiven you for it. You're in Christ. Now, I, I know it's like, wow. 
let's get this Bible study over with and let's get on with some sinning then, my brothers. And sin- no, that's, that's the wrong response to grace. You don't fully understand grace if that's your response. Lots of New Testament letters are written against that too, which is called license. And it's a deficient understanding of the gospel. But there is freedom in that, that we have grace now. Take my yoke upon you, grace, and learn from me because I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Isn't that that beautiful? So in other words, what we're talking about is the freedom of having not the law restrict us, but the love and grace of Christ compelling us. You see the difference there? We're not living in restriction. We're living by the provocation and and the compelling nature of God, his love and his grace. So... How is the freedom of Christ different than these slaveries that Paul is teaching us against, teaching against? Christ is the only one, the only way who delivers you and I from sin's nature, consequences, guilt, and power. In one way, it is the freedom to become more fully human. And here's what I mean by that. If you think about Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, that occurs chronologically before what big event in chapter 3? Original sin. It's not a trick question. Original sin, the fall. So Adam and Eve are existing in total perfection, paradise. There's no corruption. Nothing wrong in the world. Everything is perfect, including all of creation. Can you imagine eating fruit that, that is always perfect? You never have to decide whether it's um, too ripe or not ripe enough. Think about the best avocado you've ever eaten. Times that by 100 and every avocado is like that. Okay, you don't like avocados. How about honey crisp apples? Same thing. Well, those are perfect almost every time, so it doesn't count. Okay, but you get the idea, right? They're living in perfection. And not only that, but they also are living in this perfect intimacy with each other. They have no hiddenness. There are no secrets. We would have conversations with them right now, and they wouldn't know what to do with some of the language and terms that we... We would ask them about trust and uh, submission and power and authority, they, ha- they would have no idea what we're talking about. It was only after their eyes were opened by eating the fruit that they came into contact with those notions, and that was not good. So verse 24, the second last verse before um, the end of chapter 2 says, And the man shall leave his mother and father... And be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then verse 25. And the two of them were in the garden, and they were naked, and they were not ashamed. It's more than just physical. And when the two become one flesh, that's more than physical too. It's, a, it's an emotional and spiritual bonding. Like we've never, we know it's deep down in our hearts. We know it's there somewhere. God is, uh, you know, Ecclesiastes 3, God has placed eternity in our hearts. That's... We know that there's that perfect intimacy there somewhere, but we've never experienced it, and we want it, we pine for it. This freedom in Christ, the gospel, starts to reverse that curse and starts to lead us back toward being more fully human because that is what being fully human looks like, Genesis chapter 2. And, oh, by the way, Revelation 21 and 22. The beginning and the end. Again, it's, it's a beautifully free, a beautiful thing. And again, it's the, it's the freedom to be negatively free. So back now to this concept of negative, freeman, uh, negative freedom. Watching Morgan Freeman uh, videos, and so that screws me up. Anyway, negative freedom, saying no to certain things, even of great value, so that you can have and do other things that you value. Unrestrained freedom actually leads to bondage. If you, as, as Bud says, if you do whatever you want, as Sulai says, with absolutely no restraints, okay, here's where you and I will end up. Sloth, lust, addiction, 
poverty, broken relationship after broken relationship. All of these are forms of bondage. Right? And that results from unrestrained freedom, from what we might call positive freedom. So genuine freedom takes discipline and restraint, and part of discipline is sacrifice. Sacrifice is giving up something of value today in order to enjoy the benefits of something of value at a later date. You restrict yourself here so that you can have freedom over here. That's just the way life works. And we all kind of understand this inherently. We just don't much care for it. Another way to say it is to let go of something you love, the approval of others, for instance, for something better, the wisdom of God. It's hard to do, isn't it? Don't you want to be approved by others? One of the, when I do premarital counseling, I make them go through this exercise where they have to discern um, what are their top three or four false gods in their life that they, and, and, you know, they really have to wrestle with this. One of the most popular answers is that I'm a people pleaser. I care more about what other people think than what my uh, bride or groom-to-be thinks. Now, if you don't think false gods mess with our horizontal relationships, too, that's, you know, the more I say yes to others because I don't want to disappoint them, by nature, the more I have to say no to who? Jackie? My kids? Right? Okay? But this idea of restriction, we don't like it. But I would argue that if we're just more aware of ourselves, we'd realize that we do it all the time and don't think twice about it. Here's just one minor little example, but it just made me laugh. I was uh, moving Shelby to Houston in June, and I went out one morning for a run, and it's in the Rice Village area in the Texas Medical Center, very nice area of Houston. Some would say the only nice area of Houston. Um, I lived in Houston a year, I can say that. Seven years I spent one year in Houston. Anyway, so I, I'm, I'm out running, and I come across this sign. In I was about to run into this community, and here's this sign. It, doesn't, it wasn't what is freedom in Christ. Here it is. Braswood Place. Now, if you can't see underneath, it says underneath, a deed-restricted community. That's their sign welcoming you into their community, a deed-restricted community. What does it mean that it's a deed-restricted community? What does it mean? What? Age. Oh, okay, but, but bigger than that, not just what are the restrictions, but what does it mean? Your deed of your property that you're buying and paying a premium for, right? There are deed restrictions. I have all this money. Don't, don't we often equate a bunch of money with freedom? Yet these people with all this money, enough money to live in Braswood Place, they walk in there and they sign... I'm restricting my property to a bunch of people I don't know with an agenda that doesn't line up with my life so that I can have a Braswood Place address. We do this to ourselves all the time and don't even think about it. Just, okay, here you go. Have you ever lived in a deed-restricted community? See what happens if you place the wrong potted plant out on the front porch. See what happens if... Uh, one time, Jackie and I lived in, a, in an area like that. We painted a gate, a neutral color, but it wasn't one of the approved neutral colors. I thought for sure the Supreme Court was going to come down on us based on the letters we got. Don't put your garbage cans out even three hours early. And, and for crying out loud, don't park your car anywhere else but in the garage. You can't do it. Maybe if you're washing your car, but really we'd rather you just took it to a car wash. We do this all, we, we willingly restrict ourselves. And yet we say, I'm, I'm all for freedom, no restrictions. Where do I sign to get into this community? Okay. It's also a challenge for us to feel that truth, this idea of, of that there's actual freedom in restricting ourselves. It's hard to feel that truth. And here's just a very simple example. I've mentioned this before. Is it not true 
that donuts taste better than broccoli. Thank you. It is absolutely true. But what do we do? We eat the donut. No. What we, <laughs> we restrict ourselves from the donuts and eat the broccoli so that we have freedom physically, whatever it is, live longer. We can enjoy a healthier lifestyle. I mentioned earlier piano. Um, when I was at Grand Canyon University working on my bachelor's as a mid-30s person, um, here you go. This is back when Canyon had 1,500 students. It was a tiny little um, liberal arts college run by the Southern Baptist Convention. And, and I went there to it was an NAIA school, which is just one half a slot above Division Three. Okay, And I went there to get my degree in religious studies, minor in communication. Uh, the first semester I was there, I took a beginning acting class with this guy, Claude Pensis, who I kind of knew. He's a friend of mine. He, he runs the theater there, the Ethington Theater there. He still does. He's still in charge of that theater now. Um, here's what I found. They were auditioning the first week of classes for a play. And I thought, <laughs> I have no experience in this, but I'm going to go and audition. I mean, why not? So I went and auditioned. Okay, here's what I discovered about small liberal arts schools. If you're old, like in your mid-30s, you can have no talent and you'll get a part in the play because they need old dudes <laughs> to play fathers. And I auditioned for three plays. I got three parts. Okay? Twice I played the father of somebody, and another time I played a literal father. I was a priest. <laughs> so each time. Okay, anyway. So I walked in one day. They had a grand piano in the theater. I walked in one day for rehearsal, and there's Michael Carey. He was the backbone of GCU's theater department for four years. The guy was absolutely incredible. And I walk in, and in the lobby I can hear somebody playing the piano, and I'm blown away. I've taken piano lessons before, and I love the piano. I'll go see anybody decent play the piano live. I'm listening to this piano. I'm like, who in the world is that? And, and I walk in, and it was Michael, this 20-year-old kid playing the piano like this, you know. And, and I remember thinking, I would give anything to be able to play the piano like that. Two days later, I walked in. A little bit earlier, Michael was playing, but he wasn't playing any song. You know what he was doing? Scales. Over and over and over and over. And I said, how long have you been doing this? And he said, about three hours. Three hours of scales. Okay. I would not give anything. You see what I mean? Does that make sense? This is what genuine freedom is about. There has to be an element of dis discipline and restriction. Uh, there was a guy that, um, for some of us, uh, or some of you, Cardinal fans, five or six years ago, he broke our hearts because he intercepted Kurt Warner at the goal line and ran 100 yards the other way and scored a touchdown. Remember his name, anybody? James Harrison, that guy played at a high level in the NFL for the Pittsburgh Steelers until he was 38, 39 years old. Here he is. He has, he has uh, workout videos on YouTube that will shock you what this guy can do. But this is why he played in the NFL and played at a high level. Obviously, he was born with a body that could eventually do that. But he didn't just do it naturally. He had to work at it, too. It, it, you watch some of these videos, and you're just blown away. There's another guy that I absolutely love, although he plays for the Pittsburgh Penguins. He's the defenseman, Chris Letang. He, he's incredible. He's not the greatest offensive threat, but th there's nothing you can do near him. He's got similar videos. I mean, the guy is absolute, just absolutely incredible. He, he has high level of hockey skill, but he... He spends four or five hours a day in the gym. How many of you want to spend four or five hours a day in the gym? Okay, now. Yeah, I would too, actually, Perry, but. Okay, but now, the next question is, you, you're a financial guy, financial advisor. How much time do you spend reading about that? 
working the reports, running the numbers. Yeah, when I'm not sleeping. If you want to be, if you want to have the freedom to be good at something and to provide and do, you, there's a certain amount of discipline that has to take place. You can't be free by just letting it happen. We're called to this. Okay? Hebrews 12, the author writes this. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. I would add, because it is. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness by those who have been trained by it. Even the Bible talks about this. Here's the problem. One problem, as again, Josh Butler defines it in uh, Skeletons in God's Closet. Here, here you go. He says this. One of our problems is that we live in a culture that wants freedom from rather than understanding freedom for. You see the difference? We want freedom from, and that's not true freedom. Freedom for is true freedom. And he actually gives you three cultural parallels to help explain this. This is just fascinating. It's a little hard to hear sometimes, but it's really interesting. He said, number one, we have democracy, which has led to freedom from God. Aren't we proud that we live in a democracy, that our form of government is a democracy? Don't we tell everyone we need to spread democracy? Democracy is just awesome. Democracy, democracy, democracy. And yet, what democracy ultimately will eventually lead us to is always voting against God. And that's exactly what's happened in our democracy, has it not? Right? It's funny, he does, uh, he does say this. He says, democracy is actually the worst form of government, except all the others. Here's, here's the second one. Suburbs. Freedom from what? Others. You know, you, you zip into your garage, the garage door goes down, boom. A gated community, the whole thing. Freedom from others. We just don't want to bother with anybody else. And then the third one he says is social media. Freedom from what? Ourselves. We can be anybody we want online. We can be anybody we want through social media. It's one of the problems with social media. Freedom from self. If you're really self-aware and doing some self-examination, you know that deep down in your heart, you're not happy with who you are. You'd really like to be someone else or maybe a much better version than yourself. We know that's one of the areas, psychologically, we know that's one of the areas of tremendous discontent with people. They don't like who they are. They'd rather be somebody else. They're sure somebody else has a better life. And by the way, uh, most forms of social media only exacerbate that problem because real life is what happens between pictures being posted on Facebook. Why don't they put, why, why does anybody post the worst possible pictures from their life on Facebook and let everybody know that their life really stinks? Why won't anybody do that? Okay. He uses these parables to expose our lack of self-awareness and lack of discernment for our own good. Add to this our love affair with the autonomous self and a friction-free existence and wham. Problems with true freedom. We, we desire a friction-free existence. We desire an elimination of all tension. How often do I talk about, if you're here exploring the church in Christ because you want to eliminate all tension in your life, you're probably in the wrong place because the Bible teaches that there's tremendous tension. It's all over the Bible. The gospel gives us the ability to be free for God, free for others, and free for our identity to be in him and not in some fake profile that we've managed to conjure on social media. That's true freedom. By the way, on friction and tension, some of you maybe have heard me mention this before. If you're interested in watching this video, it's pretty interesting, about 24 minutes long. It's by a guy named Steve Selzer, S-E-L-Z-E-R. It's like a TED Talk, but it's not a TED Talk. He's a vice president for Airbnb, and he 
talks about how all of these technology companies and automation companies that are all the Silicon Valley companies, so Google, Amazon, Airbnb, Uber, which by the way, don't we all use these? I mean, I, I, I love them all, okay? And some of them have become uh, verbs and nouns in vernacular. You know, I'm going to Google it, okay? I'll just get an Uber. I say all the time, I'm going to get an Uber. You know, I don't have the Uber app on my phone. What app do I have? Lyft. Exactly right. But I'm going to get an Uber. Okay, they, they, th th these companies have changed our vernacular. Okay? He works for Airbnb, and he says the whole point of these companies is to reduce friction for the consumer because the consumer doesn't want friction. So now you can have groceries delivered to your home, right? Because... I mean the friction and the tension involved in actually driving half a mile to Safeway to find a parking spot that maybe is under a cover and then getting that cart that always has one wheel that's going like this and then having to maneuver it around in the produce department while everybody's touching and squeezing and you, you know, you're in there and, and, then, and then having to count your items and you're at 16 and you want to go in the 15 express lane. You know, I, the horrible tension and friction that we live under. I'll just have it delivered to myself. I run every Saturday morning with Mark Hansen. I was talking to him about this, and he goes, you're absolutely right. I live three doors away from Costco. I just order my Costco stuff now from Amazon Prime. I don't want to get in the car and go three doors down to Costco. Right? Okay. Here's what he says. He says, Everybody wants to remove friction. That's what we're doing. That's how we make our money. That's how we increase revenue. That's how we make a profit. The problem is we are discovering that a lack of friction and a lack of tension is the worst thing that can happen to human beings because you never grow, you never learn, you never discover, you never mature if you don't have friction and tension. How many parents have decided that their children are never going to encounter any friction or tension whatsoever if they can help it. And then they turn 18, they go off to college, and they have no idea what happened to them because they can't handle it. Right? We raised Shelby and Darby to deal with friction and tension. We weren't hands-off, but we let them experience some of the disappointments in life. And, and the point of Seltzer's um, video is that he said, I'm trying to figure out how to do Airbnb and introduce friction. And I'm going, well, that's stupid. I mean, who's going to buy that? You know? Amazon's going to come out with a new product, apparently, where you can't buy with one click, and it's going to take three months for you to get it. Okay? And that's going to help you become a better human. Nobody's going to go for that. Okay? We are so bent on freedom from that it's literally destroying us. And Paul's notion of freedom in Christ is not freedom from, but it's freedom for. Something else that's interesting, uh, some of you maybe saw this. Tim Keller was asked to speak at the parliamentary prayer breakfast a month and a half ago. You guys saw that? Was that talk amazing or what? By the way, so anybody else seen this talk? Okay. This is the first time in my life that I've seen Tim Keller nervous. I could tell the first five or six minutes, he was a little jittery. He was a little nervous. And I was like, yeah, finally, somebody else is nervous. Okay. But anyway, um, it's worth watching. A couple things. He kind of stuck it in their face at one point when he said he was offended by the question he was given to talk about in the first place, which is really interesting that he would say that to Parliament. Okay, you should watch it to get the context, but I was like, yeah, okay. But here's the other thing he said. He said, here's the challenge with culture and Christianity, okay, and why Christianity has such a problem with so many of the cultural dogmas that we're getting tossed to and fro by. He says, culture has a moral code, does it not? There is a moral code in culture. We're, we're, it's reinforced and we're told all the time what the cultural moral code is over and over and over and over. And if you break that moral code, there is 
hell to pay for it, right? You say the wrong thing, you do the wrong thing, you tweet the wrong thing, you post the wrong thing, people are losing their jobs because of a joke. They, they do a little joke and one person gets offended, they rally everybody on social media and it's a social media rage and they get somebody fired. So we have a moral code in the culture. But what else does culture tell us? I'm going to move over here to show you there's a difference. Culture also tells us what? You must follow your heart no matter what. You must be true to yourself. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Okay. What if my true self is a racist? What if my true self doesn't believe in same-sex marriage? Do you see the problem with this? Culture has no idea what they're talking about. Sorry, they have no idea what they're talking about. And they make fun of the Bible. Okay? That might sound a little harsh, but good. <laughs> and also, if my heart is truth, what happens when hearts collide? As they do. You ever had your heart collide with anybody? Okay. I, I've, read, I've read several essays just recently, like in the last six months. Pretty much what's happening in culture is whoever yells the loudest is the one who's right. That's essentially what we've come to. Isn't that fun? So here you go. This is like... How would you like to spend an hour in a room with either Sean Hannity or Joy Behar? Anybody up for that? Because both of them, all they're going to do is just shout you down no matter what you say. They have their talking points. They're ready to cut you off. They'll ask you a question, three words in, boom, they start talking. That's just who they are. Frankly, what I would pay money to see is to have Sean Hannity and Joy Behar in the same room. That would be fun. But that's, that's the culture we live in. You know, four talking heads all yelling at each other. I quit watching cable news five or six years ago because I can't understand a single word that anybody's saying because they're all yelling over each other. I, I don't know why the ratings aren't just plummeting on these shows. I don't understand. Who can understand any of it? You know? Here's the last thing, though. And this is pretty important, so we'll spend a couple minutes on this as well before we finish. So what does freedom then look like when we apply it in various contexts? So here are some contexts. Vocation, work, parenting, finance, marriage and romance, physical health, emotional health, leisure. What does freedom look like there? It was... Um, one of the things I did with my investigation is I just went around and asked people that I have a high level of respect for because of past conversations I've had with them and some of the life experiences they've been through. And I asked them about what do you think freedom is and what does it mean? What does freedom mean to you? And what does it mean to be free in Christ? And how do you apply this in context? And uh, one of the persons I asked, I, I asked her, I said, where do you see freedom in the application of freedom in, the, in Christ in these contexts, all these contexts? And she didn't hesitate. She said, the road to freedom in every one of these contexts is through contentment. And she's absolutely right. This actually ties to Paul's teaching on contentment. Uh, you've heard me say before that one of the challenges with human beings is that we want to be someone else we want to be with someone else, we want to be somewhere else, and we want to be doing something else. We're all unhappy with those four major categories of our life, right? Okay? I told the story about going to Philadelphia last year uh, with Shelby, and I'm walking around Philadelphia going, this is a great city. I would love to live here. It's better than Phoenix, for crying out loud. Every person I met who found out I was from Phoenix was like, oh, I would just love, I'd love to get out of this ratty city and live in Phoenix. It's, fa it's, fa it's fascinating to me. Um, you know, 
So many people have the geographical solution to their problems. Have you ever heard the geographic solution to their problems? Things are really bad here. I'm just going to move. Montana sounds so nice, so peaceful, so serene. I'm going to move Montana and get rid of all my problems. Okay, here's the first challenge there. You'll be in Montana, so there's going to be problems in Montana. And have you ever spoken to anybody in Montana? They want to move to Phoenix. By the way, the current Montana happens to be Nashville and Austin. Everybody's dying to go to Nashville or Austin because all of their problems are going to be solved if they can just get there. Okay? But with who you're with, I've, I've cited this statistic in Keller's book on marriage before. 77% of married people admit, as long as they know their spouse won't hear this, 77% of married people admit that they would not marry the same person again if given the opportunity. 77%. So they'll end up marrying somebody who within a couple of years, they'll be unhappy with them as well. The problem isn't necessarily their spouse. I know sometimes it can be, but most of the time it's not. The problem is them. The person who's been divorced and remarried five times, there's a common denominator there, and it's not all of the wives. Okay? That's a total lack of self-awareness. And it's the old Schrader story. You know, oh, if I could just get her to go out with me. Oh, if I could just get her to go out with me exclusively. Oh, if I could just get her to say yes to my proposal. Oh, if we could just get to that wedding date and get through our honeymoon. Oh, if she'd just divorce me. We're just never content. And, and, and by being so discontent all the time, we place ourselves in bondage of our own making. Of our own making. When I heard this person say this to me, one of the connections I made almost immediately, because she said it in the spring, I've lived, I, I've lived in Phoenix for 52 years of my life, 51 or 52 years of my life. And I will tell you, you can ask Jackie, she'll tell you this, I loathe summer in Phoenix. Lo I, hate, I hate the heat. I just absolutely can't stand it. And I whine and cry and moan and complain constantly about it. And so this year, after hearing that, I thought, you know what? I'm going to have a good attitude about summer in Phoenix. And I've had the best summer in Phoenix I've ever had. And it's all about my attitude, just my attitude. I'm content. And, you know, I started to notice some things. There's hardly no there's hardly any traffic in Phoenix during the summer. It's really pleasant to drive around as long as your air conditioning works. <laughs> but li literally, it, it has not bothered me this year. When you start down that path of discontent, it's really hard to stop. Here's what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you've, re you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity to show it. So the church in Philippi was giving money to Paul to take back to the mother church in Jerusalem because they were suffering from terrible droughts and economic depression. And then Philippi couldn't give them any money because they had their own famine and drought of, uh, of their own, and they, and they were in trouble. And so he couches that in terms of concern for Paul and his ministry. So he's saying, you couldn't show your concern for a while, but now I'm so glad he has received a gift from the Philippians. It's one of the reasons why he's writing this letter is to thank them for the gift that he's received. I'm glad you've revived your concern for me. I'm glad you sent some more money so I can help the church in Jerusalem. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul says he's learned the secret to life, contentment. I know how to be, um, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him, Jesus, who strengthens me. That's where contentment lies. It's in Christ. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. 
And, and notice that he says, uh, whether I have a lot or I have a little. How many of us think that if we just had more, we'd be content, and then we get more and we're not content? That's bondage. Contentment is directly related to freedom in Christ. Paul says so, and we all experience it as well. That's the truth about who we are. That's the challenges that we have, is this tremendous amount of discontent that we deal with. And so often it's just a matter of looking at things differently. And let me say this one more time. I always say this when I talk about contentment because it's important to hear this. Contentment is not antithetical or at odds with ambition. So many people hear the word content and they think they can't be ambitious or goal-driven or of high capacity. That's just not true. Can you think of anybody, if you've read Paul and have studied Paul, the life of Paul, can you think of anybody who was less ambitious than Paul? Yet he gives us the supreme teaching on contentment. Ambition and contentment are not mutually exclusive. Get up every day, plan your day, set your goals, be ambitious, live up to your capacity the best that you know how. Contentment means that at the end of the day, here you go, you're happy with who you are, you're happy with what you've accomplished, you're happy with where you are, you're happy with what you're doing, you're happy with who you're with, and tomorrow you get to get up and do it all over again. That's true contentment, and that's freedom. It's bondage when at the, at the end of the day you're sitting around thinking, I'd rather be doing something else somewhere else as somebody else with somebody else. That's bondage. I'm done. Look at that, eight minutes early. I'm so proud of myself. And I even showed a video. Let's pray together. Lord God, um, we do pray for uh, this understanding of freedom that will lead us to true freedom which involves wisdom and perspective and contentment. God, it's only by the power of the filling of your Holy Spirit, by the teaching of your word, by the sharpening of the communities that we're in, the faith communities, that we can, we can press into this, that we can lean into this. And so I ask that we do that for all of us. Help us to be content, help us to be free, and help us to center everything that we do in Christ Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.